Hi, this is Dave Lee, a.k.a. Jerry Negro from the Sunburst Band. When I'm in Melbourne, I can't stop listening to the Soul and Soul radio show with Matt Campbell and Robbie Blanco. Hi. Yo, yo, guys, this is Miguel from Soul Magic. This is Richard Earnshaw. Antoinette and Levy here from Group Boy. Jerry Negro from the Sunburst Band. This is Matt Early. This is Jonathan Mayer. I'm Drex Meister. This is Michelle Weeks, and you're listening to Matt Campbell. Matt Campbell. Matt Campbell. Matt Campbell. Matt Campbell. Matt Campbell. Matt Campbell and Robbie Blanco. Robbie Blanco. Robbie Blanco. Robbie Blanco. And Robbie Blanco. Robbie Blanco. And Robbie Blanco. The best soulful house on the planet. It's gonna be How can the cover say all that's to be said? Who am I? Lion or the lamb? Soul on Soul Radio with Matt Campbell and Robbie Blanco. We are very excited today to bring you an exclusive interview with Dave Lee, a.k.a. Joey Negro from the Sunburst Band. We caught up with him over the Christmas break while he was touring in Australia and had an amazing interview with him and an in-depth interview as to what is going on at the moment within the music industry, producing and so much more. Keep listening to the show because this is really an incredible insight into Joey Negro. Soul on Soul Radio here with Matt Campbell and Robbie Blanco. We've got a very, very special guest, Mr. Dave Lee, a.k.a. Joey Negro. Dave, we are so happy to have you here in Melbourne. Just so wrapped and excited to see you. First up, tricky question, how are you? I'm very, very good, thank you, guys. (laughs) I feel absolutely bloody great. Well, just to make it easy, I put up online because I wanted to get a few people who listen to the show into Soulful House um, to ask you some questions. So I got a, a, a listener, James Ash. He asks you, are you sentimental about the sound of vinyl? He recently pulled out Can't Get High Without You, which he thought sounded beautiful and warm, but fairly low fidelity compared to today's technology. As a producer, do you prefer the ability of the digital sound? Um, in lots of, I mean, I think you just got to move with technology. I mean, I like records in lots of ways. You know, I like, I like records to hold. I like the size of records. I like reading information off records. You know, I'll always like them as objects. I think from the practicalities of DJing, I think the digital age is better, really. If you're in a club and everything's pristine equipment, then obviously vinyl can sound really good. But in lots of places, the decks are in terrible condition and, you know, people would bump into them and jog the records. You know, that doesn't happen as much. And I think there's there's lots of negatives with records as well. So, um, you know, obviously they got scratched and, you know, it's not... I can remember so many times I've pulled out an old album and I think, oh, I've kept that in really good condition and now it's suddenly warped or it's, you know, got some clicking noise on in the intro and whatever. So, you know, you know, there are lots of, lots of annoying things about records. They, they weren't very durable, to be honest. So um, it is what it is, making music today is the digital, we live in the digital age. Where did your name Joey Negro come from? And why did you start this whole alias 
because you've got so many different aliases like Jakarta, Sasamato, Doug Willis. How, how did that all come about? I guess because I, I grew up in the disco era, I, I, there's lots of records by producers who I knew of, you know, like when maybe when I started collecting records, I'd, I'd noticed, oh, this record's by the, by the same, like, music by uh, did in the Bush and Keep On Jumping, is Patrick Adams. Then I'd notice, oh, this he's also behind Sign or another act. And I'd noticed that, you know, these people seem to just invent names and release different records. I guess when we first started making music, me and a couple of other guys, Mark Ryder and Mike Chill, we thought of a name, which was MDM for that, which was just our initials. And I just thought make, thinking of a name for, act, for the act was just kind of part of the process of making the music or, 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 or you know, one of the things you have to do before you release the record. The first record I actually made on my own, the first few things I did, for the, I think between 88 and 1990, I did with Mark and Mike, and they were sort of collaborations. And Do It Believe It was the first, which was kind of me on my own. I, I decided to sign it to an American label called New Groove. And I said, I've done this track, would you be interested in putting it out? And I sent it to them and they said, yes, we like it, we'll put it out. I couldn't think of, and I'm normally quite good at thinking of names, things like Raven Maze and whatever, I've got, but I come up with them sometimes when I'm not actually, don't need to think of it. I'll just, some, somebody will say something and I'll mishear it or I'll hear something in a film or a TV show or in a book. And that can be a, that's I think, oh, that's a good name for an act. And I couldn't think of a name. And I had some records next to my desk at work. And I think I just was put under pressure. New Groove, I think it was Judy at New Groove, said that we need a name by the end of the week. Otherwise, the record goes back by two months because we're going to have to move some other ones in, of, in front of it because we've got to do the label. And I thought I'd go. And that's the worst time for me to think of a name. So I just looked through these records next to my part, uh, desk at work. And there's one by Jay Walter Negro, which is an old thing on Z Records. And another record by uh, Pal Joey, who was then sort of kind of a new New York, and that was that was it really. And I'd never thought of it as a long-term thing. I just thought that'll do for that record. That EP did quite well, and then I remixed a track from the EP and got a girl called Debbie French to sing on it, and that was called Do What You Feel, and that one did pretty well. So then the name kind of was the name that I became known by. But I mean, other than that, I mean, when I'm doing a, I, I've made a lot of records over the years. I suppose at points I've been making like, you know, releasing like two or three records in a month. I don't think I can release them all under the same name. I think that would be more confusing if I just released everything. I mean, maybe other ways it would have been better for my, you know, if I'd had sort of like, you know, 400 records out all under the same name, maybe that would be better than having like the Sesamato, Doug Willis, Zed Factor and whatever, I, I guess. In some ways, it's just been a way of sort of like, well, if I've got three records out over two months, a Z Factor, Doug Willis, and a Sesamato, to me, seems less confusing. If they were all the same name, sometimes maybe I've signed something to a label, like I've signed something to a Zuli, and so it's not an exclusive thing. I've just signed it to them as Z Factor or Sesamato, they only own that, they only own Sesamato. You know, if I sign something as Dave Lee to Azuli, or whatever the label, Ministry of Sound, then, then that often people can end up stuck in a deal where they can't do anything else. They're stuck in this sort of exclusive licensing grip. But if I sign exclusively as Sesamato, it means I couldn't make another track as Sesamato whilst I'm in that contract. It's also the slightly different sound, so you know, Z Factor's a bit more big roomy, Sunburst Band's obviously, Sunburst Band Live, Jazz Funk, Disco, you know, Jakarta was a little bit more chill out. So I mean, there's a different, um, there is a different, slightly different sound. 
Though there are record, definitely records that could have come out under loads of names, you know, or different names. If you had a choice to produce a commercial artist in today's day and age that are in the charts, who would it be? I don't know. I mean, I quite like Alicia Keys. I mean, is she a commercial artist? You know, I don't know. I mean, you know what? I don't think it depends on the brief from the A&R man. You know, if you, I think you could make a good record with Rihanna or, a, you know, a lot of it. Anyone who can sing, you can make a good record. It's if they want to make that sort of record. If yeah. someone said, I want Rihanna to make a disco record, then I'm sure I could Beyonce or anyone like that. You know, I'm sure that all those people are probably pretty good singers. Yeah. It's just like they're, they're, what they're trying to do is, is make something very catchy with all the auto-tune and all the sort of trancy type sounds, you know, it's that they're, they're doing what they set out to do. They're not interested in making something like that. So, but there's lots of artists who, um, Beyonce is another one, you know, I, you know, I like her voice and I think potentially, I mean, and I like, you know, maybe I like Deja Vu and Crazy in Love and I'm not really into the sort of auto-tune sort of, I think, I think the problem is at the moment, um, well not the problem, but a problem is everyone's just trying to make the same record that fits onto playlists and is very easily marketable and whatever, it's kind of marketing-led music. And I think now it's very, very A&R'd and very like, we want it to sound like this record that's just been successful and the video to look like that. And I think it ends up with homogenizing music, so it all kind of sounds quite similar. How are you dealing with all the piracy issues in the music industry and how do you feel it's going to go in the future and do you see yourself producing if it gets worse than what it is now? It is very, it's a very depressing situation if you actually start looking at it because there's so much file sharing and so many illegal sites which are actually selling music, you know, there's a lot of, that's what I think is, is uh, gutting is when you put your track up on track source and then a few hours later it's on a lot of illegal sites and I mean I don't understand why firstly someone who buys a record or gets a then just puts it up on zippy shirt to give it to people they don't know. <laughs> I can understand okay they want to give it to their mates but this is just giving it to the general public, people they don't know from the other, on the other side of the world so I don't understand why you do that, do you know what I mean if you like that sort of music. I mean, I think the, the problem is with file sharing as well as I think people just see it as like, oh, Madonna's made 13 million instead of 17 million this year. And they don't look at the people much lower down the chain. You know, the folk artist who was selling 3,000 who's now selling 700, you know. So that's, that's, that's where it hurts. Because I mean, I think the, from a you know, record label point of view, you don't make much after, out of the first 1,500. The profits in the, once you get above that, I'm gonna keep doing it until I stop enjoy doing it. I mean, I'm in a much better position than a lot of people because I actually made a bit of money when there was money to be made. You know, in the 90s and up until about seven years ago, file sharing wasn't such a, an issue, or not it wasn't as the issue it is now, where, you know, we're paying, every release we put out, we're paying a company to take file shares down. And that's part of the cost of putting our record out, because if you don't do it, the week of day of release, week of release, you, you do a search in Google, and the first five pages are result. But they're fighting a losing battle. They can't ever really win. You know, you've got people on eBay selling sort of DVDs of like, you know, 500, whatever, Funky House, Trans, what a Soulful House, the latest releases, Top Beatport, you know, and eBay don't do anything about it. There's a lot of people who don't want to change the situation 
because they make money out of it the way it is. Everybody's absconding the blame. It's not ours, we're just the server, we're just the pass-through site, we're not doing, you know, but ultimately, it's so gutting when you, you, you spend, you know, however long making something, and then like literally straight away, there it is, people just giving it away, or profiting out of it. You're paying a $15 a month subscription fee to get everything on TrackSource and everything on Beatport, you know, and I think anyone who, um, who goes to those sites, I, I, I think you're an asshole. And it ends up costing, on the average record, probably cost me about a thousand pound per track to make it, you know, so that's quite a lot of money to make back, you know, and I know lots of guys are like, you know what, if I could just make it back, you know, because it's just, it's, you know, you can't make that much money out of like 700 sales and track source or whatever, it's just, you know, so yeah, it's a, it's a depressing uh, scenario. Well, what Matt and I have noticed in that regard, that a lot of the better marketers and producers reissuing their tracks multiple times a year or, or, or slowly adding mixes of that track to basically get greater longevity. So is that a deliberate ploy for you to try and sort of like combat the copyright? Uh, not particularly. I mean, I suppose one of the reasons maybe with track source is the, tr the chart that people see on the front page is the track chart. So if you've got loads of mixes on your release, then you might be number one in the singles chart, but you won't be so high in the tracks chart. And the tracks chart's actually the one most people see. So normally when we release something now, we just release one mix. And then maybe a month later when it's a full release, then we'll release the instrumental, dub, acapella, all that sort of stuff. So it's it's only because of the way the charts are compiled. Sometimes you just want you want a record to get the maximum profile. So you're better at being at number one on the tracks on the track chart in track source than being number one on the singles chart and number fourteen on the. Do you know what I mean all your, it's people are buying the single because it's a better package. So a lot of the time you're just doing it. It's the same with Beatport. If you've they they're more tracks like single tracks focused. So if you maybe put out four mixes at the same time, you might find all four mixes doing about the same, but none of them are that high. You want one mix to be high, the four mixes to be in the middle somewhere. Yeah. So it's about giving people initially just one thing, so they can't, the, the sales aren't dispersed across lots of different versions.
Dr. King called the fierce urgency of now. Fierce urgency of now, because we are at a defining moment in our history.
So how did the Sunburst band come about? Where'd the name come from and where, where did it start and how did it start? I think they just started because I was quite into the stuff like the um, some of the early Newphonic stuff like Phase Action, that more live sounding disco sort of like instrumentally stuff that was around in the mid 90s. And I did an EP of that kind of, which I'd started working with this keyboard player called Jessica Lauren, who's got, she had lots of original keyboards. So when she'd come to the studio, she'd bring her Rhodes, she'd bring like, you know, Mini Moog and lots of all this, all vintage gear. So it was cool. And um, I did a few tracks with her playing on. I sent it to a few labels. I mean, I had Garden of Love on it. It was probably one of my best-selling tracks. But I sent it to a few labels, and no one was interested. This is a funny thing. Wow. Yeah, no one was interested. I sent it to like. I mean, I don't know if he even ever listened to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So because so, I didn't even say I didn't want to say it was me. So I just sent it as a punt. I thought, well, let me just do it as a. We know it well. <laughs> What's yeah, that? We know Garden because you did a vocal mix. Of, you, yes. you did a vocal mix later of it. That's right. Yeah. The original mix was like an instrument. That's right. Yeah, and then the instrument. So yeah, but anyway, it just showed. I mean, I sent it around no one was interested so I mean it just shows that if, if people are sending around their tracks to labels that just because no one's interested doesn't mean it's not any good because people just often just don't listen to it and, and it, anyway so I ended up releasing it myself and then I thought I enjoyed making that record and I thought I'll do another one which was a, a cover version of Touchdown Ease My Mind com combined with another Brit funk record uh, Freeze Southern Freeze which are two favourites of mine I combined them and I did a sort of more electro-y type track on the B-side but so I made I, I did six more tracks and I put also New York City Woman on there which had been a B-side of another single uh, Can't Get High Without You on the 12 inch and uh, yeah I enjoyed making it I think I listened to that album again about four years later and I thought I must make some more this is what I don't know I think in some ways I mean I enjoyed making it and I thought I'd like to make more of that, this sort of music and I guess by then I'd met Julian Crampton who plays bass and I guess that's one thing I always make sure when I make a Sunburst Band record that the musicians actually get a chance to shine as musicians because I don't think you hear that much, that, that much in dance music anymore you know that's one of the things I used to love about records I bought in the late 70s and whatever there was there was a lot of virtue also performances and whatever and although I don't think that on its own makes a record good I think if the track's good then the, when the bass player's really giving it some and there's a sort of vibe solo at the end and you know high quality musicianship is something to be savoured and I think um, it's something it's almost become uncool in a way now I don't know why it's just like 
You know, and I'm fed up with records made by people who can only juts about play or can't even play, but they can kind of put it in with, you know, with, with, with a computer, you can kind of half come up with the yeah, chords yourself. Yeah. And yeah, you know, it doesn't sound bad, but it can sound much better if it's actually someone who can actually really do it, you know? <laughs> I've known quite a few guys who are producer DJs who insist on doing everything themselves, and I think their music sounds considerably worse because of that. Do you think it's just because of a lot of these pseudo-producer DJs are just being a tight ass and don't want to spend the money? I think sometimes it's not wanting to spend the money, and I think sometimes it's just an ego thing of wanting to feel like they're doing everything themselves. It's somehow feeling better at the end, and I think sometimes, I think we can all convince ourselves something's better than it is when it's we're involved. You know, so I think if you're just listening to something and you think, well, okay, it sounds fine, you can't, until you hear something else there, it's like if I you hear a track sung by one singer and you think yeah, it sounds good and then you hear somebody else sing and you think oh, actually that is actually quite a lot better it's until you hear you know see I think you I do I think sometimes it is being a tight ass though maybe not knowing if they had a musician who lived next door that he'd just come round to do it fine but if they think oh, I've got to call him up I can't be I can't be asked and maybe you know what it doesn't matter for a lot of sorts of music if you're just making your bog standard beatport type house track then probably maybe it's actually it doesn't really matter and probably might be a disadvantage of being too musical do you ever see the sunburst band touring australia we have had our inquiries about the sunburst band but the problem is at the moment anyway it's eight people so that's eight flights eight hotel rooms it's expensive and i understand that there isn't a massive audience you know so that's that's the problem and that's the problem you know with any live act i think people I was having an argument with this Russian guy just before Christmas who was telling me that, you know, the money's in, that the downloading is just going to happen, but the money's in the live. And I said, well, the money isn't really in the live. It's in the live if you're, you know, I don't know, someone, a really big pop act, but it's not in the live for a lot of, you know, unless... So, I mean, I maybe need to do a slimmed down version of the Sunburst Band, which is just like, like four people or something like that, which would be a more uh, tourable... You know, so it's obviously less flights, less hotel rooms, less costs. But um, obviously, the thing with the Sunburst Band, our Sunburst Band, is it is a live sort of. You know, it's been difficult to do Earth, Wind, and Fire before people. I don't think we're Earth, Wind, yeah, and Fire, but there's a lot of. You know, even with eight people, there's stuff running live. You know, we can't have strings, we can't have horns. I mean, that's just drums, bass, keyboards, a couple of singers. You know, it's, and percussionist. It's not actually. You know, uh, it, when you've got a lot of music in your music to recreate that live, or mm. you know, to perform it live, you know, it, it's it's uh, you got you need a lot of multitaskers, and uh, so I don't know. It would nice be nice for it, for it to be it come you know to Australia because I think people would enjoy it, but I can understand why financially it's difficult to make that happen because someone's got to foot the bill, you know. Your last album for Sunburst Band, which was uh, Secret Life of Us, acoustically you kind of hit a new high on that album. It just sounded so incredibly sweet um, and you'd hit like a whole new level on the album. Was, it, was there something that particularly happened within the production of the album? Because it just was at, a, right. at another level. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad you think that because I actually, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I, I'm quite critical and I wasn't sure it's actually some point. I, I'm not sure if I like how it sounded. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm very, that album's a bit more digital than some of the other albums. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Not that it was, it was all recorded analog, but uh, it was mixed digitally. So uh, maybe you just really like digital sound. <laughs> 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 But I don't know. I mean, you know, for me, 
I think as a producer, I don't know, maybe in 10 years' time I'll be able to listen to it and think, oh, actually, it sounds good. But I just can't help but listen to it and think, oh, the bass, the bass is too loud, is the bass too bassy, is the drums, uh, the drum. you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm picking holes in it when I'm listening to it. I'm still, because I can still, I mean, that's the thing with me is I, I tra um, the guys at TrackSource have got quite annoyed with me at points when I maybe I'll, I'll mix something, I'll, I'll upload it, you know, and I've all, this, this is at a point where I've already changed it like 50 times, you know, I've played it out, changed it a bit, played it out, changed it a bit, listened to it in the car, tweaked, 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 tweaked. Mm -hmm. Eventually, I've got to get to the point where Simon, who works for me, is saying, look, it's out on Monday, we've got to upload it to TrackSource. And I've, we've uploaded it to TrackSource, and then I'm, I'm, I'm emailing them direct on sort of Friday afternoon saying, look, I've just done a new version, can you just swap over the files? Oh. And then I've done that a few times, so I'm constantly, that's the thing with today's technology, you can meddle with it forever. I mean, there's a couple of tracks which of mine which I've played here, which are actually already out, which I'm gonna alter when I get back and re-upload new versions. You know, you can keep messing with things and it makes no difference. And sometimes you move something a tiny bit and God, that sounds so much better. Yeah. I'm looking for that moment all the time. And you know, sometimes you get to it, sometimes you don't, you know, so, uh, but I'm, I'm definitely, a, 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 I, I tweet things far for probably too long. Out of all the uh, artists that you've worked with, all, all, all the vocalists, I should say, and you've obviously worked with like Take A Boom a number of times, Lisa Shaw a few times. So who would you say would be your most memorable vocalist that you keep working with? I mean, I'd say the most memorable one was probably only someone I've worked with once, only because it was the first time I worked with a really, really high quality vocalist was Thelma Houston. She was the first time I worked with a real disco diva, like someone had bought her records and she was a real, you know, when she was ad-libbing, it was kind of like, this is the real deal sort of thing. And then I guess, you know, since then, I've worked with a lot of those and, you know, the, you know, but, I've had some great sessions with Pete Simpson and lots of people. You know, it's often down to the just the X factor that day and the song you're working on. And uh, Taka's great. We've done some great tracks together. She's a laugh in the studio. You know, so I mean, it's just. Um, but I mean, it's, if you're working on a really good song with somebody, you know, and you've written a song together and the song's got that special thing, that's almost more important than, you know, and, and also, you know, if the person is a, is a laugh, I guess, you know, I've worked with some singers and they've just been really miserable. And it's been a struggle to get, you know, you know, you, you, yeah, and just like, you just feel like, like they'd rather be anywhere else in the world rather than where they are with you and they just don't want to be there. And that that's not fun, doesn't matter how good they are. You know, things like the Kendra Cash record that came out last year, I noticed she was over in the UK and always keep an eye out who's coming to England, who's on at the Jazz Cafe, are they here for a while, you know, so if I see someone who's, who's decent is over, I'll try and, and sometimes you, it can't happen, D-Train was over the other, uh, before Christmas and he wanted uh, just too much money, you're just trying to say, well, look, if you're over and you've got, you know, a spare couple of days and you want to get together and do something, because that can add so much more to your record if you find a, mm -hmm. a really good singer and, you know, it's nice to work with someone whose music you bought back in the day or whatever, but I'd also like working with, say, someone like Shay Soul, yeah. who's like a new, you know, I like working with people who are, you know, new, young, bring different, bring different things to the table. Thank you. 
with your latest release, Electric Empire. They're an Australian group, aren't they? How did you hook up with them? I listen to Solar, you know, I try and listen to Tony Monson in the mornings if I'm around, and I heard that song quite a lot. I didn't know they were Australian, I thought it sounded American, you know, I thought it sounded like very light. So obviously, it's very Stevie Wonderish, and a song really grew on me, and uh, it's just one of those things where I got in contact with somebody in the UK who knew them, who put me in contact with their label, and I just said, Are you interested in maybe, you know, me licensing that song and remixing it and putting it out as a single? You know, maybe it'll, people who maybe wouldn't have heard of Electric Empire, you know, and they were very into it. And um, it was a slow process, just getting the parts, and it was done like a live record, so it was sped up and slowed down the original. I thought, God, this is going to take forever. And it, it did take a while to get it right, but um, I think the thing is with that, it's a good song, and that's that's what is, is I think, hard to find, you know, and, and as a remixer, they're the best things to do. You know, I've been, you know, when I've been remixing things and it's not a great song, it doesn't matter what bass line or chord progression you put behind it, you're never gonna make it great. You can make it much better than it was. But if you've got dealing with a good song, then your job is so much easier. So uh, that's why, you know, like if I find things on, you know, a track on a soul album that maybe just like, it's only got, got to a very small amount of people like that, or the original Kendrick Cash Smile, what brought them to my attention was because they were good songs. You know, I think that's got a good chorus, it's good hook, you know, it's something that's actually something memorable about it. So, um, you know, if I can license them and then do a new version for Zed, then that that is actually much more worth my while doing that than signing something which is maybe a good sort of DJ track type thing, but really it's not, I, I don't know, I just like that sort of music more, I guess, you know. So. I read a few years online that you were uh, an avid buyer on eBay of old vinyl and actually ended up getting into bidding wars with uh, Dimitri from Paris. Is it true? And when did you realise um, it was Dimitri you were bidding against? I think it, it is true and I don't do it too often now, uh, but I still do look on eBay occasionally. You know, I still buy, buy the odd, uh, I'm against eBay because of the piracy thing, but I still buy records on there from time to time. But um, I think, um, the reason why we were bidding against each other was because there's a thing called Auction Sniper where you can just actually think, oh, I see that record, I'm just going to put it into Auction Sniper and that bids, on, bids for you in the last five seconds of the auction. So um, I think one of us was using that and the other one wasn't using it. So um, I think we were out bidding each other without actually realising the other one was bidding on it. So I mean that's that's why. But uh, those early days of eBay were fun from like the point of view. I mean there was records which I maybe I'd heard someone had maybe mentioned it to me 15 years earlier. I'd never seen a copy, and then oh bloody hell, it does exist. You know, I, I I've got that on a seven inch. I never knew there was a 12 inch of it because I guess that's one good thing about the internet is it has. You know, records that maybe were just a local release in Virginia, which maybe would have never have got out of that, you know, state. All of a sudden, you know, the world can see that record and hear that record. You know, it might have only been 500 pressed up, and that would have never been exported out of the country. So, you know, there's and the same with like there's records that I remember being very, very rare. Now, aren't rare because they actually weren't that rare. They were just rare in England. You know, so it might have been a promo-only thing that, you know, there might have been a thousand copies of them in circulation quite easily in America, but they're in junk stores and, you know, in the UK there's only five copies and it's quite depressing because I remember a record I took me ages to find and I can see now it's on discounts for like you buy it for £1.50 because it's 
obviously it wasn't that rare, but there just wasn't many in the UK. So the internet has opened up the world in terms of sort of like, you know, something which would have been quite hard to find a few years ago now is uh, relatively easy. It makes it a bit boring, to be honest with you. I think, you know, like I was I was at a gig the other week and this guy played this Norma Jean Bell track I didn't have. And I'm like, oh, that's quite interesting. Then when I looked on Discogs and then, you know, yeah, there's like 30 copies on sale. And, you know, if you want to reissue it, that, or if you want the one on the original label, it's a bit more expensive. And I thought, well, I don't know. I would have preferred like to have kind of wanted it for two or three years and then found it in a junk shop myself for like you know five dollars and that would have been fun but just the fact that I can the next day buy a copy and it's okay if I want a premium condition copy it's this much if I want to you know it's just kind of you start to question do I really want it you know what am I going to do I'm just going to get it home and you know the thrill of the chase and wanting something is often more exciting than actually just being able to have it I think that's one of the things we've lost with music is back in the old days and you know it is what it is so i'm not just crate digging yeah but not yeah. even that just crate digging but like with promoing records we can't ever promo a record now we can't just give it to a few djs because you know and people hear it and think oh what's that and they want it for a few months and eventually it comes out as a white label or some sort of promo and then maybe three months after that sort of official release and you can build up a demand and people want something whereas now you just got to put it out straight away if that's it because otherwise people are just going to get it for nothing so you've at least got to give them the option to buy it yeah. so um, it's a shame that you can't ever really build the demand up for something and I think people used to enjoy hearing Masters at Work play something and then not be, not knowing what it was for a few months and finding out what it was then wanting it and then, oh, it's apparently it's coming out on that label and you know that was part of the fun of it whereas now it's kind of like you look on track source and or wherever Beatport and you just have to that is the latest music you know it's not you can't build the demand up. And I think also that's reflected in the charts in the UK. You know, a record like Dennis Ferrer, Hey Hey, would have been a hit a few years ago, but now before you can get it on the radio, you've got to prove it's a popular record. So it's got to be on Beatport, it's got to be on compilation albums, it's got to have, you know, established itself, by which time it's probably sold like 50,000. You know, so you can never build up that demand to push it into the charts. You know, whereas a lot of those early dance records and throughout the 90s, something would come out Maybe they'd sell a thousand, then they'd delete it, and demand would build up to build up, and then one week they'd release it, and you know, like 15,000 clubbers would go out and buy it, and that would push it into maybe 25, then it would start getting on the radio. But now you can never get that initial impetus because you can't hold anything back anymore. Mm. So that's why the only things that ever get in the charts now are the things with the full marketing campaign, the video, you know, so you can't ever, I can't ever envisage how a really underground record could ever have the the demand to push it into the charts. So what are your plans for 2013 and for Z Records? Uh, we've got lots of releases ready to go. We've got a Frankie Knuckles director's cut of uh, Secret Life of Ours. We've got a few Sunburst Band remixes. Hot Toddy's done a great version of Taste the Groove. Al Kent, Million Dollar Disco's done Why Wait for Tomorrow. Because that's one of the things with the album, because we've got so many album tracks with lots of live parts and whatever we try to uh, you know give them to people to remix get new versions so we got that and then these guys Coyote who've uh, did one of my favorite records from last year house records called Breaking they've done a, a remix of an old track of mine called Rock Your Body and then for myself I've got a few things I've done a track with this guy called Guillaume this uh, deep house guy which is a little more sort of Probably commercial, more sort of deep vocal track, and uh, I've done another track, a track with uh, Alex Mills, which is more on a um, 
She worked with Fanatics. That's right, yes. And she also sang on that, I don't remember that track, Mikhail Campbell, something special. So anyway, I've done a track with her, which is almost finished. And then a more, couple of more new disco things. Uh, I've got loads, I mean, I've always got loads of stuff in the pipeline. I don't really ever have a plan. Do you know I mean, I'm not a really a planner. I just tend to finish stuff off when I finish it off. I mean, I'll do it. I've started off a new Sunburst Band album, but that probably won't be till next 2015, or whatever it is, 2014. And um, we've got a new Under the Influence album, which is kind of like um, a guy. These albums, Under the Influence, the idea behind them uh, is like, I, I've come across a lot of really hardened record collectors who are just like, these guys aren't well-known names, but they're just really, really deep into their music. They're, you know, another level of, you know, I consider myself someone who's probably spent a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of, lot of time in record shops and whatever, but these are guys who've, you know, got an unfair advantage and because um, they've worked in record shops or whatever. And uh, yeah, so we've got another one of those. Paul Phillips did the last one, this guy called James Glass, and that's quite an interesting cross-section. He's got some, like, almost like sort of, Disco, not disco, new wavy stuff and some soul funk, this, you know, the usual, uh, just but a real cross section of stuff. And then I've got an album coming out, hopefully in May, which is all like original disco stuff, which I've remixed properly, which has got the Roxy music, same old scene, and I've done some clear. Uh, I love to dance and what other ones? Uh, Freak, uh, Mass Production, The Rider Michael Warden, all done from the tapes. So um, yeah, that's called, I think, called Mixed with Love. And that's hope. And then we've got another compilation album as well. I can't remember what it's called, but uh. Dave, we want to thank you on behalf of myself and Rob for taking the time to do this interview, and uh, we wish you the best for 2013. Massive thank you, Dave. Really appreciate you coming on the show, Soul on Soul Radio, going around the world. Massive thank you, Dave. Much respect to you. Cheers, guys. Thanks for having me, and uh, uh, here's to a great 2013 for all of us. <laughs>
been listening to the Joey Negro special from the Sunburst Band on Soul on Soul Radio with Matt Campbell and Robbie Blanco. There is an extended version of this interview on soundcloud.com forward slash Soul on Soul Radio. Check it out. Two hours of amazing music exclusively for you. We will catch you next week with the latest and greatest in Soulful House. Tune in as we drop some massive bombs next week and I will have an exclusive mix from the United States of America from an up-and-coming incredible DJ. Go to soundcloud.com and do a search for Soul on Soul Radio. Then download our show each and every week in glorious, high-quality stereo. Beep, 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 beep.